morning, everybody. Glad you're here. You can find your seat. Uh, as you're sitting down, we will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, you can turn there uh, and be ready. We are still in our series. We will be for two more weeks. So this week and next week, we will continue to be in our series, The God of All Comfort. And then we're actually going to break and do three weeks of uh, looking at who Christ is and kind of this season. Um, and uh, so that'll be going through the, the holiday season. And so we would encourage you to uh, just prepare your hearts for that. We have uh, a lot coming up and going on. And uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the service. Uh, remember, this series that we're doing, The God of All Comfort, is the whole reason that God, that God had Paul write 2 Corinthians. He said, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So Paul is writing to this church because multiple times, we'll see this today, he's actually going to reference this, he has visited them, he has written them letters, he has talked to them because they just would not listen and do what God said. Now finally he's writing this book because they finally listened. And he got word of it from Titus who was traveling and Titus came back and said, Paul, you won't believe it, this church that wouldn't listen, that was disobeying God, was, they were calling themselves Christian, they were calling themselves believers, but they were finding comfort in sin and in unrighteousness have actually repented. They've changed. And, and Paul's writing them this letter to say, man, I'm so comforted by what I'm hearing is happening among you. Like this brings me a lot of comfort because I've been so kind of stressed out about you, <laughs> basically Paul says. Like it has burdened me because I know that you guys have not really walked with the Lord and that you found your comfort in things that God didn't want you to find your comfort in. Uh, don't forget that we've talked about the Insanity of God movie. I would encourage you. This is a movie that talks about a missionary whose son died on the mission field and he was ready to give up on God and give up on being a missionary. And God sent him on a journey of going and finding comfort through talking to persecuted Christians around the world and persecuted pastors who were leading churches in places where their life was threatened every day. And through that process, he really understood the true meaning of the gospel and the true meaning of the God of comfort, not the false meaning that he was putting his hope and faith in. And so there's the new link. Last week I gave you the wrong link. This is the free link that you can watch if you just give your email. So it's there, revelationmedia.com. Watch Insanity of God and then backslash HW backslash. So check that out if you haven't watched it. Last week we talked about weakness and Paul was saying that basically we know this, but Christ's strength is perfected in our weakness, that Paul was purposely kept weak by a messenger of Satan, he says, that God purposely allowed this in his life three times. He prayed, God, take this away from me. This doesn't bring me comfort. Take this away from me. And three times God says, my grace is sufficient. You can trust me. You can trust me that I'm with you, that, that you're just going to be weak because I don't want you to be proud and I want you to be humble. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, look, you think that weakness is something that you shouldn't have, and it's actually something that we all have, and we need to take comfort in the fact that we're weak so that we can find strength in God and find strength in God's people. Because if you're weak, that means that the people around you have a way to help you be strong. And so we looked at that. This week, 
we're diving into seeking and building. Seeking and building. Because Paul's now finishing up the book and he's talking about, okay, now I'm going to come to you, but I need to ask you, what are you seeking and what are you building in your life? Like, are you seeking earthly comfort? Are you seeking earthly kingdoms? Well, that's not going to pay off. You're going to not be comforted. You're going to be stressed out. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be all the things that we see in our world because we don't find our comfort in God. We don't find our comfort in eternity. We don't find our comfort in the body of Christ. We find it in our own ability, our own power, our own strength, and what we can do and what we can prove. And God is coming to the end of the book having Paul write this and say, look, what are you seeking and building? And so let me ask you, what are you seeking and trying to build in your life? Like, what is it for you that you're truly seeking out day in and day out? You know, what is it that you're, that you're hoping to build with your life? You know, I think one of the weaknesses of the modern church, especially in the West, is that we're so busy seeking the things of this world and trying to build safety and security and all these things that we're not actually concerned about building the kingdom of God. We're more concerned about what people will say about us here than what God will say about us when we stand before him someday. We are. We're scared to death of being labeled legalistic or mean or judgmental. And someday you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. I mean, I was talking today or this week with some of our, some of you in this room. You know, one of the things that struck me this week is the fact that it's amazing to me that if you set boundaries in your life, it's amazing to me how many Christians will convince you to break your boundaries. Because, they're, because they accuse you of being a legalist. Well, that's legalism. No, it's a boundary that I've set. I'm not saying that I'm better than you because I do it. I'm not saying that I'm more righteous or that I'm saved because I do that thing. That is just a boundary I'm not crossing. And it's amazing to me how many Christians will push you to try to get you to cross whatever that bound is. They can't be content in that you're finding your comfort in obeying God in your conscience and it's like they feel guilty for that. And you could take a series of issues. One of the big ones is alcohol. I don't know how many Christians have told me, you know, and have challenged me that don't be legalistic about alcohol. Well, I'm not legalistic. I don't look at people and say, well, because they took a drink, they're going to hell. But I'm not going to have it in my life. Period. First of all, I have an addictive personality. So it's probably not good to have around. Secondly, I have people in my home who are underage all the time. I don't want to bring temptation. Thirdly, we don't have good public transportation. So if people come to my house and drink, how are they going to get home? In Europe, it's different. In Europe, if you come and you have alcohol at a, at a cafe, you jump on the Strassenbahn, it stops in front of your house and you get off and you're there. You don't have to drive home and kill someone. The train drivers, you're not driving the train. You're not driving the bus. So there are boundaries that I've set. And again, I'm not legalistic. I'm not like, that's terrible and awful. It's just, I'm not going to do it. And I can't believe the number of Christians that are like, oh, you got to be careful teaching that. You got to be careful that you, why? Why is everyone trying to convince me I need to drink? When, G when, when God says beer is a brawler and wine is a mocker. Again, is it, is it evil? No, I just, I'm not going to do it. And you think that's just one area of dozens of areas that it's almost like 
When we start really seeking God and really trying to build what he wants us to build, it's amazing to me, just like in Corinth, that these aren't non-believers that are going to come after you. They're people who call themselves believers who are actually going to start pushing your boundaries. And they don't do it in a good way. They're not asking good questions like, why do you believe that? And why do you think that? It's like, well, if you do that, you need to do this. And you give them all your reasons and they're still like, oh, that's dumb. And Paul is digging in. Let me ask you this. What would others say that you're seeking? If people looked at your life, if your friends, if your coworkers, if your family looked at your life, what would they say that's what you're really seeking? What would they say you're really building? Because I think that's a great question. What, what do you think I'm trying to build in my life? You know, I see so many people trying to find comfort in so many other things than God's word, God's character, who he is. And it's not wrong. God gives us comfort through food and the world and creation. There's, there's beauty. But we have to be careful. And when Paul's laying this last part out, he's kind of digging in. So let's look at God's word. If you've got your Bibles, which you should, if not, you can... Use technology, it's there, but 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 11. We looked at part of this last week, but we're going to pick it back up because it, it blends into the next passage. It says, Paul says, I have become a fool and you forced it on me. In other words, I didn't want to talk about myself. I didn't want to have to defend myself, but I have to because you forced the issue by allowing people to defame me by allowing God to be defamed. And then he says, I ought to have been recommended by you since I'm in no way inferior to the super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed among you in all endurance, not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. So in what way were you treated worse than the other churches, except that I personally didn't burden you? Well, forgive me this wrong. Look, I'm ready to come to you this third time. Third time. What? Two, three strikes, you're out. Okay, and then he says, I will not burden you for I am not seeking what is yours, but I'm seeking you. For children are not obligated to save for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now granted, I have not burdened you, yet sly as I am, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you by anyone I sent you? I urged Titus to come, and I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and in the same footsteps? You have thought all along that we were defending ourselves to you. No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want, and I may not be found by you to be what you want. There may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanliness, sexual immorality, and the promiscuity they've practiced. This is the third time I'm going to come to you. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word will be confirmed. I gave warning, and I give warning as when I was present the second time. So now while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest, if I come again, I will not be lenient. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, 
He is not weak towards you, but powerful among you. In fact, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power. For we are also weak in him, yet towards you we will live with him by God's power. So let's pick this up. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I've become a fool, you forced it on me. I should have been endorsed by you since I'm in no way inferior to the super apostles, even though I'm nothing. You see, Paul founded this church in Corinth, right? He was their spiritual father, so to speak. He taught and modeled for them how to live as Christians. And then he left to go do some other things. And these other apostles, these other teachers came in and began to challenge the simplicity of the message and the gospel that Paul had Begun, And they challenged just the simplicity of the scriptures. And, and they were smooth. We looked at that before. They, were, they used flattery. Paul talked about that earlier in the book. They were impressive. And, and now the people began to look at Paul kind of like a country bumpkin, right? Paul doesn't know as much. He's, he's kind of Mr. Country Simple. They started to look and say, you know, he doesn't speak very well. He doesn't look really good because he's kind of short and, you know, long-winded, all these things. And then now Paul is forced to have to like come back and say, why did you stop listening to the gospel? And over and over again, he says, I'm not talking about seeking Paul. I'm not talking about building Paul's church. He says, I'm talking about seeking and building a relationship with the God of the universe and seeking and building his people. And all the other super apostles, these, these other guys, these other apostles that claim to be from God, they're seeking and for themselves and they're building for themselves. And it's really easy to see in their lives. The problem is we like that. We love successful people. We love the people that look great. The persecuted church, I don't want to read about that. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to deal with that. The Dave Ramsey church, oh, I want that. It's all good and we're all financially free and we got emergency funds and retirements and we're just waiting to retire and then for Jesus to come back. Again, I'm not against the principles that Dave has, but if we're really truly thinking about our heart, Paul's writing and he's saying, look, I am not inferior even though I'm nothing. See, this is the true mark of an apostle. This is the true mark of a spiritual leader. He says, look, you want me to say I'm inferior. I'm not inferior. You're not inferior. If we're in Christ, we are in Christ, period. That's not the issue. And I know, Paul says, that I'm nothing. That if, that if I do anything in my own strength, if I seek God in my own strength, if I build in my own strength, I'm just like all the rest of them. So, so literally, I'm nothing without Christ. But these guys are telling you, you can be something without Christ. You can, you can set Christ off to the side and and do whatever. And so what are the signs of an apostle? Paul lays this out. An apostle is someone who recognizes their inferiority, that they're nothing, but then they, they still serve. They're not walking around bragging about what they have and what they can do. They're walking around talking about who they are and their simplicity. That, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. If you look, he goes on, he says the signs of an apostle. The apostle's were able to do signs and wonders. One was that they actually physically saw the person of Jesus. Another one that's a sign of an apostle is they have great endurance. They don't quit. 
They keep going. That when the miracles aren't happening, they still stay on the ship. They still continue to serve even when God doesn't deliver them. When Paul prayed three times for his weakness to be taken away, Paul says, well, I just got to endure in grace. I'm not going to get a miracle. I'm not going to have this happen. Versus the false apostles go around promising miracles and signs. And if you just have enough faith and pray long enough, God will do it. Paul never said that. James never said that. The, the apostles also, they did wonders and miracles with endurance. And I've always thought about this. How do you do a wonder and a miracle with endurance? I thought a wonder and a miracle meant you didn't have to endure it. I thought a wonder and a miracle meant it happened now and then it's over. It's like, no, 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 no. Most of the time, if a miracle happens in your life or something incredible happens in your life, you know what comes with it? Responsibility. Responsibility follows that incredible gift and that wonder that was given to you. It happens all the way through Scripture. And Paul took seriously the responsibility that he had. Now, I don't personally believe that we have apostles anymore today. Because apostles were eyewitnesses of the person of Jesus. And they were able to do these signs and wonders and other things. So I'm not a person that believes that, that there's an apostolic succession. Now, do people have gifts that make them kind of apostolic, like church planting and going out? Absolutely. But, but there were 12 apostles, right? Paul was one of those. You say, well, there were 13 because there was this guy named Matthias that they voted for and drew straws for him. Did God tell them to draw straws for Matthias? He didn't. They said, well, we were supposed to have 12 and we're short one. Let's draw straws for somebody. And they drew straws for Matthias. And then a few years later, Jesus brought Paul up. I wonder if they sat back and went, well, I, oh, sorry, Matthias. We, you're a good guy. We love you, but I'm not sure you're really an apostle. Like, or did they just keep him? I don't know, but I think it's kind of comical that they couldn't wait. They had to fix it now. We have to seek the 12th one that we have to put in place. And we got to build this quick and we're going to draw straws literally to choose someone. Because that's what we did in the Old Testament. They, they drew straws. They, they cast the, the, the die to try to figure out who's who. Like, you can just see Jesus like face palm in heaven. Like, could you guys just be patient and pray and wait? I'll raise up another apostle. And he does in Paul. Philippians says this, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, we love to use that verse without looking at the second part. Because Paul says, I mean, you see this on every football player's eyes, right? Tattooed on people's arms. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then Paul says, still, you did well by sharing with me in hardship. I can do all things that are really hard and difficult and persecuting through Christ who strengthens me. You see, that's what Paul's talking about. He's like, if I'm truly seeking Christ, if I'm truly building God's kingdom, then I know and I can trust that God is going to do everything he needs me to do and he will strengthen me to endure it. That is the sign of a true apostle, not someone that's saying, you don't have to endure. You can be delivered. It can just go away if you pray enough. No. He says, I thank you for enduring hardship with me. In other words, you didn't try to fix it. You didn't come along like Job's friends and say, well, Paul, you know, you're going through this hardship because you didn't do this right. You didn't do this right. Maybe there's some sin you haven't confessed, Paul. Maybe you need to do this and do that. That's what Job's friends did. And God told Job's friends they were going to perish if they didn't allow Job to make a sacrifice for them at the end of the book. 
And many people will read the advice of Job's friends and we'll all shake our head and go, man, that's good advice. That's, that's good advice right there. Yeah, they should do that. And the whole hook in the book of Job, which is a, Job, a book about suffering, is that you're reading these friends' cases and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you get to the end and went, oh, that's me. And that's exactly what Paul's saying to the Philippian church. He's like, you didn't do what everybody else does. You guys just dug in and went through it with me. Thank you. Thank you. Second Corinthians goes on to say this. The signs of an apostle were performed with great endurance among you, not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. So in what way were you treated worse than the other churches, except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. We looked at this last week, that Paul didn't want them to have to support him, so he worked as a tent maker. And twice now, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he mentions the fact that maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done that. He's like, I'm not sure, but... I recognize that I didn't give you the chance to share with me. I, I didn't, um, what, but I think it was the right thing. But he's struggling with the reality of the fact that, look, I came to you because all the other apostles, all these other church leaders are constantly leveraging the people of God to seek and build something for themselves. Something that you can see, something big and grand. He's like, I didn't do that. I came and made tents. And I invested in you, he says later. It was about building you, not building the stuff, not building the building, the church, but it was about you. And the reason I'm coming back a third time is because of you, not because I want to see what building you've done and what programs you're running. He's like, I'm coming back because I want to see you. It's the relationship that he seeks, Paul says. And he's even willing. This is another true sign of a true apostle. He asks forgiveness. One of my big things with the Catholic Church that drives me nuts is that popes don't ask forgiveness. The popes are infallible. Why? They made some really, really bad decisions. They sent people to war to fight for the Holy Land when God said, I will restore it someday. And people were promised indulgences and terrible, awful stuff. And indulgence was, well, if you send your son to die, your whole family will be saved. And the, that, was, that was doctrine of the church. And they've never repented of that. They've never gone back and said, that was evil. We were wrong. That pope was wrong. That's the sign of a false apostle. They can't admit when they're wrong and they can't ask forgiveness. Paul says, I can admit when I might have made a mistake and I can ask you to forgive me. That is a true sign of a leader who's following the Lord. He goes on, he says, now I am ready to come to you a third time. I will not burden you for I'm not seeking what is yours but you. So Paul says, look, forgive me that while I was there the first time, maybe I should have let you support me. But I just want you to know that I said that statement. I just wrote this down. Now I'm going to follow it up because, because I said that, now the false apostles that you guys keep around you because you won't stand up to them, which he said last week and the week before, you won't stand up to these guys. They're going to use my statement of forgive me this wrong. And now they're going to look at you and say, ah, see, now Paul's coming to get money from you. Now, now he's coming to get money. See, he was, he was acting like all righteous and, oh, I'm so good. He was setting you up. He was setting you up so it was like, oh, look, I don't work, I don't work. And then he's going to come back and be like, show me the money. Bring it in. 
And so Paul writes this and says, oh, and by the way, even though I should have had you support me the first time, and I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't give you that opportunity, you don't get to support me this time. Because every dime you give this time, I am taking personally to Jerusalem, or I'm sending a group of people who you personally know, Titus and the other brother, to take an offering to those that are suffering, the widows and orphans in Jerusalem that are being slaughtered by the Jews and by the Romans for their faith. So Paul says, yeah, I'm going to come ask, but I'm not taking a dime of it. I'm not skimming off the top. It's all going to support the church in Jerusalem that's dying. So see, Paul knew that these false apostles were going to use that statement to say, see, now Paul's seeking money. Now he's trying to build his kingdom. He says, no, I'm not. I am seeking God's people and I want to build them and encourage them that they haven't been forgotten. And the church in Jerusalem feels like they've been forgotten and they haven't. And we want to practically show them you're not forgotten. It's a beautiful picture that Paul uses here because he knows that they're going to say that. You know, false shepherds are always concerned about seeking and building their own kingdom. They're always concerned about the earthly results, the earthly measurements. Now, do we not take earthly measurements? No, you should still take earthly measurements. You shouldn't drive around and not be concerned with what your speedometer says. It's a bad idea. You need to be concerned about earthly measurements, <laughs> right? And if you're not concerned about earthly measurements, there are friendly people who will pull you over and remind you of measurements. Because they care about other people because the law is good and it's there to protect you and others. And so when Paul writes this, he's saying, look, I'm not seeking what is yours. I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you. You know, one of the most discouraging things that I see in the church is how so many people are seeking the people of God for some agenda they have. You see this with churches that swap sheep. That you're just, you can go from church to church to church for whatever thing the church is offering and you go use that church for a while for that thing they're offering you. Oh, this church has a great children's program, so I'm gonna go there for a while. Well, now they don't have as many kids, so now I'm gonna go use this youth program and now I'm retired, so I'm gonna go use this because they take great trips and I'm gonna go on trips. And it's just about seeking and building what you want. It's not about actually the people and investing your life and giving your life to people until God moves you and sends you out. It's just, yeah, I'm just gonna seek what I want. I'm gonna, they're gonna use me to seek what they want. That's the agreement we have, right? No, Paul says. I'm seeking you because I want to see you built up. Look at what Jesus says about this. Jesus says in John 10, 10, a thief comes only to kill, to steal, to kill and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and turns away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own sheep and they know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring them also, and they will listen to my 
voice. They will listen to me because they know that I'm seeking them and they want to seek me. They know that I'm trying to build a flock and they want to be a part of a flock. And they know that to be a part of a flock of sheep, sheep are used for like two reasons. Sheep are used to provide clothing and covering for other people and to be slaughtered for sacrifice and for food. So what are you trying to build? Are you trying to be a person that's ready to lay down your life and give covering to other people? That's what a sheep is. And a good shepherd, that's what his goal is, is to help us learn how to do that. And thieves want to come in and steal and want to say, oh, you don't have to be slaughtered if you come with me. Oh, I won't do that to you. I won't shave all that stuff off of you. I won't do that to you. And God's like, that's not the purpose of a sheep, Jesus says. He goes on to say, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He says, I will not, or I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? This is almost John 10.10 that we just read. John 10, right here. Like, like children are not obligated to save for their parents. This isn't an idea of, of I'm coming to you and you're supposed to like give me all of this because I'm the one in authority. Jesus is like, no, I give my life to the sheep. I want to give you all that I am. I want to share with you in the blessings of what it's like to be a sheep. By the way, Jesus is what? The sheep, the lamb of God. He doesn't ask us to be or do anything that he isn't first willing to be and do. And there is no other God on the planet that does that. None. Christianity is different in that. And he says, look, I will most gladly be spent and like spend and spend, be spent for you. I want to see you seek the Lord. I want to see you built up. I want to see you go out as the Corinthian church and send missionaries to get sheep that aren't yet a part of the fold. That's my goal for you. And, and if I love you more, he says, am I to be loved less? Like, why, why don't you care about me and my heart for you to know who Christ is? He's like, I, I want you to understand the love I have for you. And honestly, I'd like that reciprocated once in a while. <laughs> it's like, it feels good to know you're loved, he says. First Timothy says this. Because some people might use this passage to twist and say, well, yeah, like, I'm not supposed to take care of my mom and dad because, you know, you're supposed to be there for me, mom and dad. You're supposed to give me my will. You're supposed to do what I want. No, 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 no. That's a misinterpretation of the passage. Look at what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, support widows who are genuinely widows. There are fake widows out there, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Like, they had that problem in this day. There were women running around who pretended to be widows. Why? Because the church would give them money. They could go on the government dole if they pretended to have problems. They pretended to be widows. Orphans did the same thing. There were a lot of runaways in this culture who ran away from their parents' authority. And then they would say, oh, I'm an orphan. Well, we need to check on that. We need to check if you're an orphan or if you're just a rebellious child. And see, we don't do that anymore because we don't be labeled legalistic. We just got to help people. Were they really a widow and an orphan? Is, are, they, are they lying? Because I don't want to support liars. 
He goes on and he says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must learn to practice godliness towards their own family first and to repay their parents for this pleases God. Jump down to verse eight. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, that is his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a hard pill to swallow. Why? Because if you're not willing to take care of your own household, then what are you seeking? Are you seeking godly offspring? Because that's what God told Adam and Eve was his goal since the beginning of creation. He wants godly offspring. He wants you to build families and to have children's and bring, children and bring new souls into the world to worship him. It's been the plan of God since the beginning and foundation of the earth. And instead, we are now setting that system aside for the system of achievement. And I've got to postpone kids and postpone relationships. And I'll get involved in church someday and all, 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 because I got all this stuff I'm seeking and building. I don't got time for that stuff. And do you know how many people are reaching their 30s and 40s in our culture today completely and absolutely miserable because they realize that I built this great thing, but I, I'm missing something. You think that was different than our day. Remember Jesus with his conversation with the rich young ruler? The guy that had built everything, didn't have a family, as far as we know, because he was busy chasing everything. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I just don't feel like I have eternal life. And Jesus is like, because yeah, you don't. <laughs> Number one, he didn't say that, but he's like, okay, well, here's what you need to do. Sell everything you've built, everything you've been seeking, everything you've been building, get rid of it all and follow me right now. Come and follow me. And it said the man went away weeping because he had many possessions. That is a message we don't want to hear in our culture today. Because I've sought the Lord, I've done what is right, and now it's time for me to get my reward for doing what's right. I've been righteous, I've, I've, I've been good, God, now it's time for you to build what I want. How about Nicodemus, the Pharisee? Jesus goes to his house at night, right? He's invited at night. Why? Probably because Nicodemus doesn't want him to be seen in the daytime, right? He comes to Nicodemus' house, and Nicodemus is the same way. He's like... You know, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisee. I've done all these great things. I have sought God my whole life. I have built the temple. I've been a part of building this new temple with Herod. I have been serving and serving, but I still feel like I'm missing something. And Jesus is like, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. You need to give up on the whole Abraham thing you're building, the whole covenant, all that stuff. And you need to be born again, believing that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. And you've been chasing every other way to get God on your side except seeking God himself, me in the flesh. And we like to blame these people, but if we're honest, we're not much different. He goes on to say, now granted, I have not burdened you, yet shy as I am, or sly as I am, I took you in by deceit? Did I take advantage of you by anyone I sent you? I urged Titus to come and 
sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Didn't we walk in the same spirit and the same footsteps? So again, Paul is following up and he's saying, look, I know I'm coming and I'm asking you for this offering to take to Jerusalem. And I know that when this letter is read publicly in the church, the false apostles after the service are going to take you out to lunch and they're going to tell you how not to believe what I said. And they're going to break down what I said and they're going to sit there and write it. And then they're going to argue about the boundary I set and told you to let them know, don't do that. And so I've got to follow up and say, now granted, I've not burdened you. He's saying, but do you think I'm sly? Because all these other people are going to tell you, oh, he's just sly. He's he's going to get you. The the hammer's going to drop. He's not really going to do that. He's going to skim a little off the top on the way to Jerusalem. He's going to stop and stay in a few nice hotels, get himself a few nice meals on the way to Jerusalem. Like he's, He's going to have a good time with that money. And then the false apostles are saying, we're right here. And even though we take some, you can see our lives. I don't know if you can trust Paul with that. And then he looks and he says, did I take you in by deceit the first time I came? Wasn't I honest with you, even though it cost me everything? Even though I was beaten and shipwrecked and all these things happened to me? I've always been honest. I've always used the word of God. He says, did I take advantage of you by anyone I sent you? All the guys I sent you, I told them they needed to support themselves. Do not take support from the church in Corinth. Did any of them take advantage of you? And then he says, I urged Titus to come. I sent the brother with him. Did they? And he says, look, didn't we walk in the same spirit and footsteps? Didn't we seek the same God and didn't we try to build the same things the same way? So be careful when people are coming to you and, well, that's the way Paul did. That's the way... Be careful. You know, what a beautiful selfless attitude the apostle demonstrates here, right? He he looks and he says, we just came to you because we wanted to seek you. We wanted to build you up, not ourselves. 2 Corinthians goes on, he says, you have brought, or you have thought all along that we were defending ourselves to you. He's going to say, well, now Paul's just defending himself. No, no. In the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ and everything, dear friends, is for building you up. Paul's like, you think that we're like trying to defend ourselves. I'm having to defend myself because the boundaries that I drew from God's word are being shredded and you guys are putting up with it, which we read about a couple of chapters ago. You guys put up splendidly with false teachers. You love it. You want your ears tickled. You want to hear something new. And he says, So I have to come to you. And he says, no, in the sight of God, I'm speaking what Christ has spoken. By the way, Jesus spoke the whole Testament because he's the word of God. He's the word made flesh. So the word is Christ giving his word inspired through people. And he says, everything, dear friends, Everything, dear friends, everything, dear friends, is for building you up. Oh, well, the law is so hard. I'm just so glad I don't have to do the law anymore because it just makes me feel so bad and it tears me down. What? what? The law is good if you understand why it's there. But instead, we want to set aside the law as if it's just, I don't need it anymore. How do you, how do you know that you're, you're sinful if you set aside the law? Now you just decide what you think is sinful or not. The law helps us to see our heart. It helps us to understand God's heart for his people. 
It helps, it helps us see his protection, that the laws were there to protect them from bad food, bad diets, bad schedules. <laughs> it was there to say, hey, when it's dark out, I want you to track your time by the moon. And you're like, well, but the moon is way less accurate than the sun. I know, but when it's dark out, you need light to give you encouragement because you're afraid something's going to eat you. So I would suggest you watch the moon cycles <laughs> to be encouraged. And then we're like, well, that's dumb. That's not as accurate as the sun. And God really cares about being accurate. Well, he wants us to be accurate. You know, the sun's still inaccurate, right? That's why you got to leap here. It's still not accurate. So we have to add stuff because it's not accurate. Like, do you even understand the moon cycles? Do you even understand the festivals and how they fit and why they come when they come? No, you don't. Most people, most Christians don't because we don't even teach God's word anymore. We don't even think that this builds us up anymore. So I don't need to know it. I don't need to understand it. That's for a bunch of Israelites that are dead. And God in heaven has got to be just broken hearted. He's like, look at how people sought me and how they didn't seek me. Look at when they tried to build what they wanted to build and when they built what I wanted to build. This will encourage you. This will help you. He goes on and he says, 1 Corinthians, in Paul's earlier letter to the Corinthians, he says, so, I also, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. You want all these gifts. You want all these proofs that God's with you and you can do these things. He's like, ah, just seek to excel in building up the church. Build people up. Seek in that. Don't worry about the gifts. Seek in just building one another up in the true faith, not a false faith where you're like, God loves you no matter what. Um, he does. God is love, but he's also just. And so if you're in the middle of sin, don't look and be like, God loves you no matter what. Just keep sinning. No, that is dangerous. And if you truly believe that God loved you, you would be like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't do this because he loves me and he's seeking me and he wants to build me up. And now I'm seeking something that he says not to seek and I'm trying to build something for myself. And I need to stop. In Ephesians, Paul writes this. He says, he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints. Saints means all of us. Anyone who's a believer is a saint, okay? In the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into a mature man with stature measured by Christ's fullness, most of the time what we'll, we do is we jump past the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, which are all referencing offices in the church. Missionary isn't listed in that list. These are all offices of the church for the training. So the ch local church is where the training is supposed to happen with pastors and teachers, right? To build up the body of Christ until we reach the unity agreed on in God's word, which is why we have to stand up against false teachers because they're not unifying, they're separating. He goes on and says this, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want and I may not be found by you to be what you want. There may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, 
and disorder. Paul says, look, I'm coming a third time and I've warned you. And I want to come and find you seeking God and building up one another. I don't want to come find you still seeking selfishness, still building what you want. I don't want to find that because he says in just a minute, if I find that, I'm not going to be patient. And he says, and, and I want you to want me to come. But there are some of you who don't want me to show up because you're not seeking and building. And you're like, hey, could we tell Paul to go maybe over to the church in Ephesus for like he could take a, you know, over there. He'd go stay in Stefan's house, not, you know, my house. And like he's saying, I want you to be excited about me coming because we're seeking God together and because we're building one another up. Not, uh oh, dad's getting home. I got clean really fast. I get all stuff done. Mom and dad will be home at three, right? I mean, that was my whole life growing up as a kid. I've shared that before. My whole life was like, how, how far can I postpone this and watch cartoons after school until I know mom or dad's going to get home, right? And I'm like, and they always work late because they're really responsible workers. So I probably got another 15, 20 minutes on top of that because they're going to like finish the task, whatever they're doing. And man, I would sit and watch cartoons just watching the clock go down till the last minute. And then I would run like a banshee to get everything done. Never crossed my mind to be like, come home, get everything done that, the, 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 that my mom and dad would want. And then I can watch cartoons. And when they come home, I'm like, yeah, everything's done. And, you know, I'm not out of breath and running around like a crazy person. It's the same thing. Paul says, look, I don't want to come to you and hear about quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, you're just in, you're in it for yourself, your selfish ambitions. You, you slander one another. You don't encourage one another. You gossip. You don't go one-on-one. -on -one, you don't talk. You're just arrogant and prideful about your own knowledge. It's just disorderly. There's not order. He's like, these are the signs that I'm going to have to come, and I'm going to have to deal with these things. You know, there are a lot of you. There's all of us. We get jealous about the dumbest things. We talked about jealousy a few weeks ago, godly jealousy. Paul's like, I'm not talking about godly jealousy. I'm talking about that jealousy that you're mad because they have someone and you don't. Or they have a better wife than you. Or they have a better husband than you. Like, what about, why don't you just seek the Lord and allow him to build your life instead of you just building your life and seeking what you want? Trust him. If you do that, the pieces will fall into place. If you don't, you're going to be someone that causes quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness. You're going to, this is just going to pour out of you and people are going to run from you like rats on a ship. Sinking ship. They're just going to run because the ship's going down. Don't do it. And then Paul goes on to say, I fear that when I come, my God will again humiliate me in your presence. He's like, I don't want to have to come and be humiliated because I have to deal with all this stuff. Because I know it's just going to make me feel horrible that I have to do this. And then I'm just going to be humiliated. I'm, I'm going to be, everyone's going to look and be like, what a freak show that he's all upset about these things. Like we, for two years, this hasn't been a problem. And then Paul shows up and it's a problem. I mean, we've been doing fine as a church. I'm sure they said that about Jesus when he showed up at the temple. I mean, for thousands of years, we've been holding these festivals and there's no problem. Then this guy walks in, he makes a whip, throws over tables and starts hitting people out of the temple. What's his problem? 
Well, this was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into de- to thieves and robbers, and I just can't take it anymore, he says, Jesus says. He goes on and he says, and I will grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and promiscuity they've practiced. He says, I'm going to humiliate myself because when I come, I am just going to, I'm going to be like fasting, praying, grieving, weeping, sackcloth and ashes because I just see you're not seeking the Lord. You're not building one another up and it's going to cause me grief and I don't want to be that way. I want to come and have joy that I'm with you. I want to come and it's just like, oh, this is great. Not come and like there's all these, you know, elephants in the room we can't talk about. He's like, because I'm going to have to talk about them. I'm pulling elephants out of closets. It's not going to go well. And they're going to just run through, and it's going to be a mess. And we have to deal with this, he says, because I am seeking you. God is seeking you. He wants to build you up. He goes on to say, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact, so he repeats himself, the third time. He's like reminding them, third time. Every fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He knows that if he says, I'm coming to address these things, he knows the false teachers are going to say, oh, well, you know, that's Paul's opinion. That's just what Paul thinks. In other words, we're doing just fine and nobody's upset about the sin in our church and we're all getting along and we're happy and every Sunday we come and we raise our hands and it's great and then all week long we live like, you know, demons and then we come back on Sunday and we're just so happy and great Paul's like every fact so if those apostles are going to establish themselves as being right they need to be fact-checked I'm willing to be fact-checked Paul says you can fact-check me you can bring your witnesses I, I welcome it let's go bring the witnesses I'm ready to go Have you called them to witness? No, you just take their story for what it is because they're successful, they look good, they flatter. You just say, oh, that must be good. What about the testimony of two or three witnesses? By the way, when he says the testimony of two or three witnesses, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Jacob, David, Solomon, Hosea, James, Peter, Paul, John. Do I need to mention some more? There are witnesses right here. It's not about you and your, what you think you saw. It's about what God says and what God sees. He's like, bring it on. I've got witnesses to back me up. I got Abraham to back me up. You want to argue about Abraham? I know Abraham. I got the whole Old Testament memorized because I'm a Pharisee. So let's go. Let's go toe-to-toe. Let's witness. Let's go after this. I've also got Moses as a witness. You want to talk about Moses says right here. What do you say? Well, you know, John and I over here, we've agreed that Moses is wrong. Uh, I'm going to trust Moses. And, And so Paul is saying this. Look, the Old Testament says this. Right? In Deuteronomy, it says, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person. 
Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness testifies against someone accusing him of a crime, the two people in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priest and judges in authority at that time. The judges are to make a careful investigation, not a, we like this guy, not this guy which is what we see in our justice system today, right? Orange man, bad. I don't care how you feel about Trump. It's like, orange man, bad. He deserves whatever he gets. Okay, well, but legally, is he wrong? And why is it you're going after him, but these guys don't get gone after? They just get to go wherever they want. Why him? See, that's not the way you judge. You judge righteously based on the law. So it's like, okay, let's get him and about three or 400 other people in Washington too on the same charges. Let's just get them all. That's what God does. That's not what we do. And he goes on and he says, look at this. The judges are to make a careful investigation. And if the witness turns out to be a liar who has falsely accused his brother, you must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from you. Remember what Paul said? Paul says to the church in Corinth, you're not purging the evil from you. You're just putting up with this. You're letting them hit you in the face. You're letting them do these. Don't do that. Purge the evil from your own heart first. Remember, plank in my eye, speck in your eye. Get the evil plank out of your eye so you can better help your brother with the speck. But don't walk around with a plank eye and just say, well, I can't help anybody because, you know. I mean, I think there are a lot of churches that could be a good name for them. The plank eye church. That might be a good name. We just all walk around with a big plank in our eye. We don't address it. And we just all walk around blind. He goes on and he says, you must purge the evil. Look, Deuteronomy says it again. Or earlier in chapter 17, it says, he's talking about idolatry. He says, if you worship other gods by bowing down to them. And if you are told or hear about it, you must investigate it thoroughly. This is not, I saw someone do it, and so I'm right, and I'm going to get them. It's like, well, why did they do it? You, know, you, you look for the motive. You, you, you investigate thoroughly. And then it says, if the report turns out to be true that this detestable thing has happened in Israel, false gods and worship, you must bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and stone them to death. The one condemned to die is to be the executed uh, is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. The witness hands, uh, the witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death, and after that, the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from you. See, this is what we don't do today. And they didn't do it in Paul's day. If you remember, Paul was assigned to kill Christians, right? And if you read about the story of Stephen, I think it's, yeah, it's in Acts 7. Paul was the one that brought the accusation against Stephen. He was the legal judge that was sent out to kill Christians and to go after them. And what was Paul doing that this verse says he should have been doing that he wasn't doing? Number one, he should have been a good judge that said, wait, we can't just stone a guy publicly in the street because he said something. There's freedom of speech here. We need to investigate what he really means. We need to investigate if Stephen's right. We need to investigate if what he's saying is true. No, we're mad you're saying it, and so the mob's going to get you. Now, 
Paul was the one that was legally sanctioned to allow that to happen as the Pharisee in charge. What was Paul doing? Did Paul pick up rocks to stone Stephen? What was he doing? Do you remember the story? Somebody remembers the story. What was he doing? He was holding the coats of everyone else and letting them do the dirty work. And Paul is writing now to the Corinthian church. You don't think he remembered that? You don't think he remembered when he held the coats and it was his job that he didn't obey God, that he didn't, he didn't want to be labeled as a murderer and evil? Because if I get this wrong and I stone someone wrongly, what's going to happen to me according to the verse we read before? I'm going to be punished with the same punishment. But if I can just hold the coats and say, I didn't throw a stone. In other words, I just stir up the dissension and cause all the problems and let them go after it. And I go, well, I didn't do it. Can't hold me accountable. God's like, that is wicked. That is not the way judgment is supposed to be done. That's not how we seek righteousness. And that's not how we build the church or I build my people. This is how I do it. He goes on and says this. I gave a warning when I was present the second time. And now I give a warning while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient. Since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me, he is not weak towards you, but powerful among you. Pause there for a second. He is not weak among you, but powerful. See, the reason we put up with sin is because we think God is too weak. He can't help me conquer my sin. The body of Christ can't help me conquer my sin. God is too weak. And Paul says, when I come, I'm going to have to show you that God is powerful if you haven't allowed God's power to show you how powerful he is. The power of judgment is coming, but the power of grace is offered. And when I come, I will offer the power of grace before the power of judgment but I'm not going to be lenient. This has to be dealt with. You're hurting one another. You're hurting yourself. And if you want me to seek, if you want to, if you want to, you say, I want to seek proof that that Christ is speaking through Paul. Well, then I'm going to come and I'm going to tell you what Christ said. I'm going to take you back to the Bible. The Bible says not to do this. You're doing this. Jesus says not to do this. You're doing this. I'm just going to take you back to the word and I'm going to show you how strong God is, how caring and loving, how he has sought out people. He has sought out sinners and idiots the whole time. And he's still building his church when he should just wipe us out and start over. Like Noah. Right? And he doesn't. You see, the false prophets were telling people, these aren't sins. God's power, his grace, just you can do whatever you want because God loves you and his grace is so sufficient for you. You can do whatever you want because God just, he just... He's longing for you and he just wants you to be a good person and build you up no matter what. It's not what this book says. The book says that he wants to change us. That his power is there to change us. To make us who we couldn't ever be ourselves. And the false apostles are telling us you can be exactly who you want to be. I don't want to be who I want to be because I always mess that up. I want to be who Christ wants me to be. 
I, I want to be who God wants me to be because every time I try to be who I want to be, I hurt people, I hurt myself, and I leave a mess behind me. Matthew says this, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take two, one or two more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, there it is again, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, then tell the church. That's the apostles, the teachers, the leaders, what we, the list we read. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. In other words, don't think that he's actually seeking God and building up the church. He's not. He's against seeking God, and he's, he's against building up God in the church. He's proven it because he won't listen. Like, like Paul, like Jesus is teaching this. Jesus is saying, look, if your brother sins, go to him because you want him to seek God. Because you want to build him up. And if he doesn't listen, then go get someone else. Are you ready for this? Because you might be wrong. And so you need to go grab someone else in the church who knows both of you so they can look at you and go, actually, I think you're the problem. And you're like, oh. And then you repent and we all go, yay, this is beautiful. And if it doesn't work and the person says, yeah, I agree with you, that, that is an issue we need to deal with. And the church leaders say that, then it's like, okay, now what do we do if they don't pay attention? Now, what does it mean to pay attention? Well, I tell you, I'll struggle with people as long as they're paying attention. But when you decide to stop paying attention and say, nope, that's okay, I should be able to do that, and here's why, and I can do this, and I can do that, I, then I, I'm no longer paying attention. I, I'm going I'm to call you someone who doesn't believe what God said, because you're literally saying, I can do this, I don't believe what God says I should do. So that's an unbeliever. It's a definition. And a tax collector. Why a tax collector? Because tax collectors are always figuring out how to skim a little bit and how to, how to manage this stuff so that they can get a little bit for themselves. That's what tax collectors do. He's like, so you've got to treat them as if they're someone who doesn't believe the word of God and they're always trying to skim a little bit and they've got, a, they've got a deal always going on and they're trying to backdoor. That's how you have to see, see them. They are not seeking God and they are not building his kingdom. Jesus taught this. This isn't Old Testament. This is Jesus speaking and he's backing up what we read in Deuteronomy because he wants us to seek God together and he wants us to build his church. As we finish... Here's what he says, the last passage. He says, in fact, Jesus was crucified in weakness. But he lives by God's power. For we are also weak, yet toward you we will live with him by God's power. Listen, we're weak. I'm weak. You're weak. I had a really bad week day yesterday. I had a bad attitude all day. I really did. I asked my staff team. I texted them like, pray for me. Don't try to fix it. Just pray for me. I'm just, I just, I'm in a bad mood. And I'm, I'm trying to trust the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm digging in with him. And I was just struggling yesterday. And, and I have to remember that that's the process is that God is trying to crucify me to get rid of the flesh and get rid of me so that I can live for his power. He's trying to make me weak so that I can be towards you on Sunday a lot better than I was yesterday. 
That's the point, is that we live together saying, no, God's power is sufficient. He can do this. And you know what? If he doesn't fix things, we can trust his power in the end because he will someday make everything right. You can seek him and you can build his kingdom and you don't have to worry about all the stuff. If you feel like you're weak, you're probably in a really good spot <laughs> because it means his power is coming to help you in your weakness, through your weakness. Maybe to get rid of the weakness, but oftentimes not. So let me ask you this morning. Are you willing to let Christ crucify you? Are you, are you willing to let him kill the things that are strong to make you weak of this world and weak of the things of him and to kill so that his power can become full in your life? Because when you are weak in him, when you fully place your trust in him and you're like, I don't come before you declaring anything. I don't come before you acting like, like I've got it figured out. I just come before you seeking you and your character and a relationship. And I want you to build me into something I can't do myself. When you do that, Paul says, now you're good for others. Now you're good to be used. It's exactly what Jesus did. Let me ask you this morning, have you surrendered to Christ? Have you said, you know what, I'm done seeking, I want to seek him. Have you said, I'm going to give up building what I want and I'm going to trust Christ to build what he wants. If you haven't done that, do it. Just say, Jesus, I, I am weak, I am a sinner, I have found comfort in everything in this world except you and I am sorry. Please forgive me, help me to seek you and build me to be the person you want me to be, amen. If you do that, Jesus says, I'll do it. He will come in in power, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You may not feel anything, but that's what he does. And for those of us who are believers, let me ask you, how are you doing at seeking God and building his church versus seeking stuff for yourself and building what you want? How are you doing? And if you're not doing well, get some help from the comfort center of God's power, his people, to help you to build a life for yourself. And don't expect us to be lenient if you're in sin, because we love you. We love you. We, we want to help you. We want to encourage you. We want to build you up. We're not trying to get money from you. We're not trying to, I mean, I told somebody that wanted to give money this week not to give money. Because of stuff going on in their life. Like, don't do it. I don't think it's wise. I could be wrong. You could give it if you want to, but I think you're trying to just make up for something. Like, I think you just need to do simple. Take care of your family. Build your family and then build the family of God. Now, does that mean we don't trust the Lord? No, we do. But we've got to look to him for our comfort, seeking him and allowing him to build what he wants. And then we simply walk with him as we go through it. It's by grace. Not by works that we're saved. It's by his grace. And when we understand his grace, it's like, oh, he's seeking me. He's building me. Even when I don't feel it, oh, there's a peace. There's a joy. There's all the fruit of the spirit that's in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you for those that are here and for what you're doing in their lives and in, in my life. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Lord, your patience that Paul said, this is the third time he's coming. He's written multiple letters. Paul has been patient for years 
with this Corinthian church. He has loved them. He has cared for them. He has warned them. He has raised them up. There's a long suffering and an endurance that, that is so essential to seeking you and for building up your people. And I pray that we would have it. But I pray we wouldn't use it as, as an excuse not to address the issues in our life and the issues in others' lives because we love them. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the witnesses that wrote it down, that we have the testimony of multiple witnesses. And we give you praise and glory this morning for your goodness, for your faithfulness, that you are the God of comfort. And may we seek you. And may we truly see you build your way in us. We thank you. We praise you in your name. Amen.